You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you, the DU Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast. We have another episode here today. It's going to be sort of a companion episode for an article that has, by the time this episode airs, will have already appeared in an issue of the Ducks Unlimited magazine, the July-August issue from 2022, our Understanding Waterfowl article. And it's a discussion, an article about prehistoric waterfowl, and I have here with me the author of uh, of that article, our very own expert in Paleology, paleoecology, Dr. Dale James, our Director of of Science and Conservation Planning for the Southern Region. Dale, it's great to have you. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. I'm not sure I'm the expert on uh, paleontology. (laughs) For Ducks Uh, Unlimited, you are. By by virtue of writing this article, you cemented yourself as that title. I I hear you. (laughs) Did I get your your title correct there, Director of Science? Science and conservation planning. Conservation science and planning. Okay, so a variation of that. You yep. you are one of four directors of conservation planning, sort of as a general label. I think uh, Mark, Dr. Mark Petrie has been on the episode a couple of episodes before. Dr. John Calusi in the Great Lakes, and Kaylin Kimmick out of the Great Plains Regional Office, and then you are our four sort of as we've known them for a number of years, our directors of conservation planning. There's some variation in the official titles that each of you have, but it's, tell us generally for those that, that don't know what those positions do. What's, what's your primary responsibility? So the primary responsibility is um, to kind of drive our, make sure we're driving our conservation programs in the right direction. We're being efficient and effective with, with how we're delivering our habitat on the ground and keeping it all founded in science. Um, so the position itself works directly with our research partners, um, with the universities, uh, federal agencies, state agencies, and the sort. We, we fund graduate research to answer some of the questions um, that we need, about, we need to know about our landscapes and um, waterfowl ecology. We'll come back to this conversation later on in this episode. There's a couple of things that I have to sort of clarify for folks that are going to be listening to this and in the context of when we're having this particular discussion. Uh, sometimes I give a sort of a timestamp on the day when we're recording an episode, and that's important for this particular episode because today is June 2nd, 2022. You're going to be a Ducks Unlimited staff member, employee for only about, what, 28 more days? As uh, of as of this recording, you're going to be... So by the time this episode airs, you will be on to your next uh, career position outside of the Ducks Unlimited organization, and we're going to talk about that 
on the back end of this. For now, let's jump right into this, this article. Prehistoric waterfowl, today's ducks and geese may have descended from species that species that once shared earth with dinosaurs. For people that read our magazine, what you may not realize is that there's a lot of thought and a lot of planning that goes into the ideas that ultimately make it to an article, as well as the selection of those individual ideas and the development into the actual article and then the selection of the authors for those articles. What happens about a year in advance, we, our magazine staff solicits, solicits ideas from our conservation staff, our science staff, from all sorts of, all different parts of the organization. And Typically, if you offer a suggestion, if you're one of the staff members that offers a suggestion, you know, the, obviously the conservation and science staff are the ones that are leaned on heavily for some of the science and, and sort of conservation-themed uh, ideas. And more times than not, if you offer the suggestion, you're going to be at the top of the list for the candidate author. And so That's correct. <laughs> you, you had this great idea of, of trying to cover and provide some insight on prehistoric waterfowl that today's species may have descended from. What made you think of this idea? What made you propose? I'm glad you did. It's really fascinating, and there's a lot of of interesting things in here, but why did this come to mind to you? So um, I think I saw this. um, It was a little blurb in one of the eco newsletters that I subscribed to, right? And um, talked about the research in uh, Australia at the time and this demon duck of doom. And I uh, thought it was kind of interesting. Um, so I suggested the idea, thinking that we could possibly take this uh, in a different direction, talk about the, you know, the historic pieces of um, the archaeological pieces of waterfowl, of prehistoric waterfowl, and then maybe talk a little bit about taxonomy. But didn't really go into the taxonomy part with this article. Um, we stuck with the prehistoric waterfowl piece. So, as you as you begin to look into some of the literature, whether it be popular. Uh, articles or even the scientific literature, in, invariably these prehistoric discoveries, you know, fossil records of of the the, the predecessors of modern day birds, invariably they are assigned these very charismatic um, common names. Uh, Demon duck of doom is one that you mentioned. Right, right. Early in your in your article, you reference the, uh, wonder, the chicken. wonder chicken, and there's others like uh, I don't know if it's in this article, but the thunderbirds or something. It's, that's that's not exactly it. I forget what it was. I was looking at it this morning, but these they have these like outrageous charismatic names, common names that they're assigned uh, to to these fossils, and it just that in in itself makes it a pretty fascinating story to explore. Whenever you and I were going through uh, undergraduate and graduate school, the prehistoric bird that I remember was Archaeopteryx. Did you mention that one? I don't remember if you mentioned it in here, but there's actually been some some more recent discoveries of birds that would have predated that one. Is that correct? I think that is correct, Mike. And I didn't include Archaeopteryx in here because I, I think the research now shows that that actually was not a dis, that that was not a direct descendant to at least a waterfowl. When we're talking about species like Archaeopteryx or whatever the the ones that would have predated it, we're talking like, what, 150, 160 million years ago? 
Yes, easily. Yeah. <laughs> and where where are where are most of these from your recollection in reading the literature? I guess we'll again reiterate neither neither of us are experts <laughs> in this field. So what we're getting is just from what we've read in various articles. Let me ask you this: What type of material did you use to sort of research this this topic? Where did you go? I initially started out just kind of googling, right, um, some things, and um, you know I don't like to base all my uh, information off of stuff I see on, you know, on the internet to say. Um, so, uh, you start Googling and you look for scientific articles, articles that have been peer reviewed. And, um, a lot of this information comes from, from articles such as that. So Dale, as you go back through that, that fossil record, you find individual species, like there, there's one here, the, the wonder chicken that we referenced just sort of in passing at the outset, it's a species that lived 67 million years ago. What do we know about that particular species? Anything stood out to you on uh, on that one? Yeah, so that one was kind of the, uh, that's kind of, the, I guess, where the, the link from waterfowl and kind of what I'd call landfowl, right? Think of the chickens, the guinea fowl, that kind of thing. Yeah, so, like turkeys, modern day turkeys. Yes, gallinaceous type yep. birds, yeah. Uh, absolutely. So that that's kind of where it began to split from that species, and thus the wonder chicken. I think it had, uh, if I recall, it had a bill similar to a chicken, but some other characteristics like waterfowl. So Dale, throughout your article, you mentioned several other species. Some were the like the most distant bird-like species ever detected or ever discovered, at least to right now. That's this the one that predated Archaeopteryx like 150, 160 million years ago. And then there's some others that you talk about that were discovered in, in other various locations. Was there is there any place in the fossil record that or any location that's particularly rich in terms of these discoveries? Where do most of them occur based on what you read? So most of them seem to appear like in like floodplain areas, um, you know, areas you would think where waterfowl would congregate today, right? Like floodplains, what I would think of emergent type areas around floodplains. But but in terms of like Australia, China, or do you know if we've what the fossil record looks like dating back that far in terms of discoveries that would have occurred in North America? What in modern day North America? Yeah, I didn't include in the article. There's um there's a couple of some research studies uh, in the the prairie states, uh, South Dakota, North Dakota, of some um, fossil records. Dale, one that I remember seeing pictures of. Um, I, occasionally, new studies come out, new articles are written about this new fossil discovery of a, of a, of a bird that would link between, you know, different orders, uh, different groups of birds, and would be, quote, the missing link or something of that nature. Uh, one is from about 55 million years ago is this Presbyornis. And people can, can go online and, and find a, an image of this, but it looks... It's a pretty interesting looking bird and, and has some appearances of modern day waterfowl. What can you tell us uh, about it? So in the article, uh, I talk a little bit about it, you know, kind of initially being when it was discovered, um, kind of the evolutionary link to the modern avian orders, right? And at that time, there was no consideration of being an, a, an anseriform or what waterfowl type um, species. Um, but since then, I guess with more discoveries of fossils and things, they um, it's thought that now they do in fact belong to Enceriform or what we could talk, consider today modern ducks. And when you look at its appearance, it the fossil record does indicate that it had 
ta- uh, long legs, webbed feet, large claws, duck-like head, and even yes. some indication of maybe a, a filter feeder, I believe. And so when I was looking at the images for this particular bird, and I don't know what images are going to appear in the, in the magazine associated with the article at this time, you can imagine several different species whenever you're looking at it. A, flim- a flamingo is one that, that kind of came to mind. Very much like a flamingo, at least in the pictures that are formed from the, the fossil. Yeah, so that that brings up a whole other issue is so you find this this fossilized creature and then you're a lot of times it's just the the bones that that you're finding maybe there are some impressions of feathers that remain but a lot of times you're just finding um, the the fossil impressions of the of the bones how do they go about what do you know about how they go about trying to figure out what these things actually look like you're trying to recreate the actual appearance of the bird you know i'm not 100 percent confident but i think think about like like how we um we envision like a Labrador duck or, or some of these other extinct species, right? Like like look at the fossils and they can see the structures of the birds, right? And so then they can probably relate that back to what we know today is certain bird species and what their structures are and get some good indication of what that, that in the bird looked like in the past. Related to that, there was another uh, mention here in the article about having found a fossilized syrinx in one of the specimens, and that the syrinx is the essentially the um, the voice box, the analogous to the, to the, to the Correct. voice box, right? Yes. And and so that would it was similar in shape to um, to what we see in geese. Those right. type of discoveries and observations are what scientists, uh, paleobiologists use to try to in, infer these phylogenetic rela- relationships, right? Right. And so then the other thing, one of the more entertaining aspects of this particular article was the species commonly known as the demon duck of doom. Tell us about that one. So that's what started it all, right? This species or critter, creature, whatever you want to call it, from, from the description, it basically sounded like what we would know as um, a rhea or a, um, a nostrich, that kind of form, but more robust looking. If you imagine something with more of a horse head, a uh, sizable horse head, and a huge bill on a body of a giant ostrich, right? With small stubby wings. Flightless. Flightless, correct. Um, this species did not, didn't have a keel. So obviously closely linked to what we would call the ostrich type species today. And not having a keel is, we're, we're talking about the, the keeled sternum, the pronounced sternum that, that the flight muscles, the big breast muscles on ducks correct. and geese attached to. And so in flightless birds, those, it does not have that keel, that keeled sternum and yes. because they don't need those massive uh, muscles to to, to power their flight, right? Where was the duck discovered, the fossil record? So this was in in Australia. I can't remember the exact location in Australia, but some riverbeds of Australia. And the names associated with these, the different families, the the genus uh, and the families of these birds are, are pretty incredible in themselves. This one is a family of extinct birds known as, if I'm saying this right, Dromonorthids? Dromonorthids, yes. It sounds like something out of um, sci-fi or something. This <laughs> sci-fi movie, um, Lord of the Rings, perhaps you <laughs> yes. know. And and then also we look at the different structures associated with these fossils, as we were talking about a few minutes ago, to try to infer their diet, um, maybe some of their other behaviors. What did the fossil record tell us, or or lead scientists to believe or debate about the diet of the demon duck of doom? Yeah, so there's some controversy there, I guess, in, in terms of the debate. And so 
some think that you know they had this large bill and they're looking at the structure um, and some of the musculature around the structure they think was around the, the bill itself um, it just wasn't powerful enough to be like a meat eater it's more of an omnivore right eating plants and things like that and then others are on a, a different camp where they think that yeah it may have been a, a meat eater type bird so I, I guess still there's not enough in the fossil record itself to kind of say yes it is or yes it isn't or it's not um basically they need more fossils <laughs> it was pretty clear to me that whoever first named it the demon duck of doom would have been in the camp that thought it was a carnivore yes, right because yes. you're certainly not going to call it a demon duck of doom if it just eats vegetation that's correct i, I saw one description <laughs> where they they thought it might it might eat small horses of the of the day, you know. Of course, horses back then weren't of the horses that we have today. But uh, this was a what seven eight foot tall eight, eight foot tall bird. And as I was reading the article, I was thinking to myself, well, what what does a demon duck of doom eat? And what came to mind is, well, it eats whatever the hell it pleases. <laughs> and that you know? large, that's right, <laughs> that large. So, but but it's always fascinating to to think and. Again, this isn't my area of study. It's not my area of expertise, but it's fascinating to think about what goes through the minds of these people as they make these discoveries and look at the similarity in the in the morphology, the shape on, of all the different parts of the um, of the bird as they can infer from the from the fossil. And and so, is this is the demon duck of doom a relatively new discovery in the fossil record? What do you know about that? I would say it was fairly new in terms of the timeline of the, some of the other species that we, we've talked about. And so that's, you know, that's probably wh- where we'll leave this, Dale. As you, as you reflect on that article and the research that you did to piece together this story, you know, you, you talk about in closing in the article of how the world has been changing constantly for throughout its, its existence. Sometimes the changes are dramatic in the form of an asteroid cr- crashing into the earth and causing extinction of nearly all animals on the planet. Birds were one of the groups that survived such an asteroid impact. So fortunately, today, we're not seeing asteroids crash into the earth. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> but but we are still, nevertheless, seeing substantial changes throughout um, throughout all of what we do. Changes in in, in climate, changing in, changes in weather patterns resulting from changes in climate, changing land use, uh, whether it relates to our human population growth or whatever else may be causing those changes. And waterfowl have proven time and again, time and again, they're incredibly resilient. And they're incredibly Absolutely. adaptable, and so we can we can take some comfort in knowing that and let's it would be interesting to know what ducks unlimited would would look like today if one of the species that we were trying to conserve was the demon duck of doom but i don't <laughs> as long as we don't get all jurassic park on us on, on ourselves here we probably don't probably don't have to worry about that you and your dog are a team Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. So Dale, I want to move on now 
to. We'll, we'll set that aside. Thank you for sort of uh, humoring me with that that discussion uh, about that article. I think it's it's always fascinating to look back at where waterfowl have come from uh, and, and what makes them the species they are today and as incredibly adaptable as they are. So thank you for that. Um, and thank you for your contribution to all these articles over the years. And so, as I mentioned uh, earlier, you are you will soon be moving on to a new position. Tell us a little bit about that. I will be moving on to be the CEO of the Robin Bessie Welder Wildlife Foundation in uh, or outside of Sinton, Texas, north of Corpus Christi. And what does the foundation do? What's it known for? The foundation um, began in 1954 at the uh, request and will of Rob Welder. He was a, a prominent rancher in South Texas. Um, he set aside about 8,000 acres to be used in, uh, he wanted it to be a working ranch and, and do wildlife research in that context. So the foundation itself funds graduate research. We tend to want to fund more research on the foundation, long-term research, uh, looking at issues with like uh, invasive species and things like that in the rangelands. Um, but the foundation itself and the refuge itself is comprised of m- multiple habitats, emergent wetlands, uh, riverine bottoms, uh, and uh, obviously scrub, shrub, ranch land type habitat of South Texas. So, And you have some prior association with the foundation. They funded some of your graduate work. Is that correct? I was a research fellow um, for both my master's and my PhD work. And so you grew up in South Carolina. That's one of the things that we didn't really cover is sort of your personal background and your career path. But just give us that sort of thumbnail sketch so people also realize the significance of your your interest in in a job, in this particular job? Yes, I grew up on a small farm in uh, rural South Carolina. So that's kind of where I got my, my love of wildlife and being outdoors. My dad was a research biologist for USDA. And so I kind of uh, came by it right, I guess. Um, and so uh, when I went to graduate school, and it's good timing because uh, the new Top Gun movie just came out. Um, the first one came out in 1986, and uh, when I saw that, I wanted to be a fighter pilot and tried to get into the service academies, um, didn't get into the one I wanted to go to, so I ended up at Texas A&M, wanted, still wanted to be a fighter pilot, and uh, believe it or not, I started out as an engineering major for a long time, um, almost got the degree before I decided to switch to wildlife and fisheries. It was always calling me. Glad I did that. Um, so I graduated from Texas A&M, and immediately after that, went and worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service in Montana, the prairies. And that's probably where I developed my love of waterfowl, just being up on the prairies and all the things that come with working for the Fish and Wildlife Service on the prairies. And from there, you went? Went back to Texas for grad school, uh, Texas A&M University, Kingsville. Uh, worked on um, breeding ecology of, of black-bellied whistling ducks. And that's where I got my first taste of the welder um, and, and lived out there as a graduate student. Now, the black bellied research was your master's? was my master's, right. And then for your PhD, also at Texas A&M Kingsville, right? Yep, yep. joint program with A&M Kingsville and College Station at the time. And uh, yeah, I worked on um, redhead forging ecology in the Laguna Madre of Texas. I wanted you to provide that background so people realize that, you know, despite not being a Texan, you know, by, by birth, you have strong connections to Texas based on where you attended school, your collegiate years, your graduate research, both your master's and your PhD, and your wife is also, or is from Texas, She's correct? born and raised a Texan, correct. Both of my kids were born in Texas. So, so there are a lot of <laughs> a lot of things drawing you back to Texas, right? That's right? And so this was a fantastic opportunity for you, and I know you, from talking with you, you and I have worked together 
for, well, as long as I've been with DU. I came to DU in, in 2005, a year after you did. And so you and I have worked together on the science and conservation planning side of things in the lower Mississippi Valley and Gulf Coast throughout that time. Right. So I know from talking with you here recently, this was a very difficult decision for you. So talk about your time with Ducks Unlimited. Uh, what will be the things that you take away to be most memorable. I know you're going to lead with the people. That's <laughs> so do that. But I also want just like people tell you, it's like when you get asked the question, you know, what are the things that you're most proud of? Everyone says, well, I know you're going to say your family. So let's just kind of set that one aside. <laughs> but I don't want to take that necessarily away from you. So what are the things that you will take away from Ducks Unlimited that are most memorable from the people to the to, to any of the work that we do? Yeah, definitely the uh, the people, um, the family aspect of Ducks Unlimited. It's, it's um it's an awesome family. <laughs> I'm going to miss that piece of it for sure. But for my career DU, you know, I started out as a regional biologist um, in our Charleston field office. Um, got me back to my home um, for at least four, four years before moving to uh, Jackson, Mississippi as the uh, manager of conservation planning and then eventually the director of conservation planning. But, um, you know, over, the career, over my career, I've you know, had the opportunity to deliver habitat as a biologist. I would say that's, that was really rewarding to kind of see the before and after of some of our projects. One of the greatest things, I, it kind of fell in my lap. I was kind of asked to, to lead our land protection program, and I've continued to kind of have interest in that. Um, I'm glad it did fall in my lap because that was probably one of the greatest accomplishments I've had with, the, with Ducks Unlimited um, in terms of being able to kind of lead that program. One of the years I was in South Carolina, I delivered 17,000 acres of protected habitat, which... Um, that's no easy fee, right? So, and when you say protected, that's perpetual protection. Most of those are easements, those correct. are conservation easements. We've talked about this on a number of episodes prior. The the way that we use easements, Ducks Unlimited Incorporated doesn't own a lot of property. We may have we have some revolving land programs where we'll purchase it and then sell it to interested uh, to willing buyers, or we will buy it, hold it for a little bit, and then transfer it to a, a public agency, state or That's federal correct. agency. And so you've probably done a little bit of all of that, right? I have, yeah. Yep. And still involved with you know with our staff here still. Um, it, that's a great program, but I don't know. When I got the call in to go into science, too, you know, I still had that piece, so it w- wasn't too hard to leave the delivery side. But, um, you know, I think that's actually helped me as a, as a planner, having that kind of background um, and knowing kind of what the staff on the, f- on the ground are doing and what they need from a planning perspective. Yeah, there's there's no doubt that, that having that experience, being able to see the program, being able to deliver the program, and then understanding how understanding how – the science that you then became sort of in charge of in terms of establishing the science priorities and how what kind of information we need to improve the delivery of the land protection program, for example, you have that appreciation and you understand some of the constraints that we may face and challenges that That's we may right. face that can't necessarily be overcome with science, with scientific information. There, there are a lot of logistical, practical um, challenges that that require solutions other than just scientific information, and you're able to see that. And I, there's no doubt in my mind that you benefited in the program and your application of science to that program benefited from the firsthand knowledge you had of the program. The other thing that I know you've been involved in over the past five years has been DU's growth in the ecosystem services area, where we are championing and leveraging the benefits of wetland conservation beyond just waterfowl habitat. Talk about that a little bit and and how 
How excited are you about the <laughs> prospects for, uh, for that within the organization? No, I think it's really exciting times for Ducks Unlimited, um, especially from the ecosystem service standpoint. I got involved in that probably back to 2016, at least here in the region. I started developing a plan for the region or just kind of in general ecosystem service plan looking at our conservation deliveries and, and the, the things that we were providing beyond waterfowl habitat and waterfowl energetics and things like that, right? Um, water quality or, or you know, coastal resiliency, whatever it is, right? And then that kind of led into us hiring Dr. Ellen Herbert at National Headquarters, which was a great thing. And she's built a great staff there now. So yeah, I've been involved with that. And one thing about the conservation planning position is it allows you to kind of flex in the different areas if you're willing to learn, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, it was something new. I was never trained in ecosystem service, any of that. So it was kind of, it's been fun, I guess, but uh, <laughs> reading a lot of different literature um, outside of waterfowl science, yeah. right? But at the same time, I saw it as an opportunity um, to kind of to, to grow the organization, right? Um, and, um, yeah, I thought it was important that as the conservation planner for Southern Region that I'd be involved with that effort. And that's it's a great point about now we're using and investing in additional types of science to inform the decisions that we're making in these other areas. We talk all the time about how Ducks Unlimited use, uses scientific information as the basis for our decisions. We don't – the science doesn't make the decision. We use the science to inform our decisions. And, and traditionally, we've focused heavily on understanding waterfowl science and and the uh, the science behind waterfowl habitats um, using information to to improve the management of those habitats but now it's a whole nother suite of scientific disciplines that we're investing in from water quality to um, climate climate science um, to aquifer recharge you, carbon you, carbon and soil health and and, yeah. and and so forth it's an exciting time and dr herbert that you that you mentioned is is sort of leading that at a national level helping us identify some of those science needs and science projects and we'll talk about some of those on some future episodes so from a kind of from the perspective of how DU's investments in science have, I don't want to say change, but when you look at our, let's just stick with waterfowl science. Let's do it like this. When you look over your career, think about the techniques and technologies that we were using to study waterfowl 15, 20 years ago, and you look at what we're investing in now, what's been some of the, some of the most notable and impressive changes from sort of a, a technology side of things? Well, as you know, Mike, we've got a lot of research out there right now using satellite transmitters, and um, I think some of that data is pretty eye-opening, um, stuff, you know, things we've never seen before, right? Still, obviously, there's still some issues with some of that. Um, we'll work through that, but yeah, it's, it's real interesting how uh, a lot of our science nowadays and the technology is it, changing. It's changing every day, right? Like, um, we're funding a study looking using drone technology to to look at abundance of ducks on at a, at a smaller scale, right? Uh, things like that, right? Stuff when I started my career 18, almost 18 years ago, we never even talked about drones. Um, so things have, have changed quite a bit. And so as we close out this episode here, Dale, I... Just one last opportunity to you ref- to reflect on your your years with with DU. I, I know we're still going to work with you. We're going <laughs> to hold you to that. We're going to, uh, matter of fact, I'm pretty sure that we're keeping you. Some of our colleagues, some of our partners, are keeping you on some of their committees. Um, we as DU employees have worked work on various regional science committees. And just because you're leaving DU, you don't 
all of a sudden lose all of your waterfowl expertise and wetland ecology expertise. So I know some of those partnerships are going to try to keep you on those science committees. But just kind of reflecting back, it's what, what do you take from it? What's the what's your fondest memory? What are you uh, want to say most proud of? We kind of covered a little bit of that, but just an opportunity for you to reflect back on your your years here with DU. You know, that's kind of hard. That's a hard question, Mike. There's not one particular moment, I guess. You know. When I got out of grad school, there were two jobs that I thought that I always wanted to do. First one was be work for Ducks Unlimited as a regional biologist, and the second was to be a leader for the Water Wildlife Foundation or some type of small foundation, right? And so, I've been a very lucky individual to be afforded both of those opportunities. Now, well, I miss the ducks absolutely, and I don't plan to go away. Like I said, a great family. I feel like I'm walking away from my family and. I'm leaving them behind, but uh, um, I'll, I'll be here. Well, you are. You're. You're right. I didn't know that when you come out of college, and it's the question that you always get: Where do you see? It's the question you always get, but you always hate to get. At least I always hated to get it. Where do you see yourself in five or ten years? You know, I. I don't. I don't know. But it sounds like you kind of did. You wanted to be in one of a couple of places. You can ask my uh, wife. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there was two jobs in, yeah. that I. The Wilder Wally Foundation was the only job that could pull me away from Ducks yeah. And they did, doggone it. And they did. <laughs> I didn't ask for it. They came yeah. to me. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I've told you, whenever you first shared that you were leaving DU, I I knew it was would had to have been an agonizing decision. I knew it had to have been a very special opportunity to pull you away from DU because I know how much you love DU and love the people, love the mission, love knowing that at the end of the end of every single day, not all days are easy, but at the end of every day you can look back, especially when you're working for Jerry Holden, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Say that in jest, Jerry. Um, at, at the end of every day, you look back knowing that you took an important step forward to making the world, leaving the world a better place than it was had we not been working in these positions or had our organization not been working to do the things that, that we do. And that's that's pretty special to be able to work for organizations that you can legitimately say that about. Yeah, it's, it's not always easy. And it's not always without uh, a few unexpected outcomes. But as long as we're investing in the in in scientific work to figure out what's working, what's not working, and being willing to make changes in our decisions, you know that the work that you're doing is always, in the long run, leading to a better outcome for the people that come behind us. Making it better, yeah. And, uh, you know, moving on to my new role, I'm hoping that, um, you know, through the environmental education programs we have at the foundation uh, with our youth and also our graduate research uh, funding those folks, that I'll be able to push some, some of those individuals towards Ducks Unlimited, um, future conservationists, right? We're going to count on it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us, Dale, for sharing yeah. your time and for contributing uh, contributing, contributing some information to the magazine over the years and especially leaving us with this, with this fantastic article about the demon duck of doom. No, appreciate the opportunity, Mike. A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Dale James, Director of Conservation Science and Planning for Ducks Unlimited's Southern Region. We greatly appreciate his time. We greatly appreciate his service over the years here with the organization, and we wish him well as he, as he goes on to the, uh, to the next chapter in his life. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the terrific job that he does with his episodes and getting them out to you. And to you, the listener, we thank you for your time, and we thank you for your support and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. 
Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.